So systematic theology, first of all, why would we study this? What is it? And who needs to be studying it? And why on earth am I teaching it? Well, let me tell you this much. I am not qualified to be teaching this. And just like I'm not qualified to be preaching, but I live within the space. Here's the space where I live. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I am what I am by the grace of God. I've crucified my flesh. It's no longer I who live, but a Christ who lives within me. And, Lord, I need thee every hour I need thee. That's the space where I live 24-7. So I'm not concerned about not being qualified because if that was it, I wouldn't be qualified to preach. But here's what I know. I can take somebody else that knows a whole lot more about systematic theology, and we can follow what they've got laid out. And this is Wayne Grudem right here. In Bible college, when I studied systematic theology, this was our textbook. So almost everything I will show you tonight and the next three weeks after that, pretty much is going to come from this. You'll see me citing that, but then pretty much when I don't cite it, it pretty much came from him too. It's just not exactly word for word. So here's what we're going to do. In systematic theology, what we're doing is, is like when we think about learning about God and knowing about God and knowing how I relate to God, how I understand my heart, how I relate to everyone around me, it's kind of like I'm in this ocean that has a depth that's immeasurable. And all I can see is the top five inches. So when we take this, what we're doing is we're, we're looking past those five inches we're used to looking at. And we actually will get down to five foot. And when we get down to five foot, we'll look at the scripture, the word of God. Look at what he's got there. And we'll see that, man, the depth of this is so deep that we can never reach the bottom of it. I mean, the glory of God is that great, that it's that wonderful, the love of God. It's immeasurable that all these things are just totally immeasurable and beyond what anything we could ever fathom. And we'll think, man, look at how great our God is. So that's what we'll do as we're studying this and we're looking at these things. So what is theology? What, so let's just go down and break, just start off with breaking down the word theology. And theology it comes, you might not be surprised by this, but it actually comes from a Greek term right here. The, the Greek term right here, theo and then logoi, that is, comes from two different Greek words. You break them down, the first one right here, that's theos. You probably know that, that's God. And then logoi right here, that's actually the same root word. It comes from logos. So the word put together for them in Greek it's about God, the Word. Now, you know John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Logos. The beginning was the Word. You'll see it capitalized in John 1, 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's all Logos right there. So for us in English, when we understand what theology is, very plainly, it is the study of God. So who should be studying theology? We all should. We all should be theologians. We all should be studying it. This shouldn't be something that's intimidating to any of us at any time. So here's what, here's, since we're going to be using his book as kind of like our textbook, let's just go ahead and use his definition. So here's Wayne Grudem's definition in systematic theology. This is how he defines it. Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? So there's different disciplines within theology. You've got just a few of them, you've got Old Testament theology, you have New Testament theology, you have biblical theology, and then systematic theology. Those are the four main disciplines if you went to a seminary to go study theology. Now, what's different about systematic theology than some of these other ones? Well, let's just take, for example, if we're going to go study 
um, New Testament theology. And we went in there, we were going to go DTS, we're going to sit down in Dallas Theological Seminary, and we're going to study New Testament theology. And we looked down through the syllabus, and we saw where you get to pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we would know. If we're studying the discipline of New Testament theology, then we'd understand we're going to look at the Holy Spirit, we're going to study the Holy Spirit within the discipline of the New Testament. If you're studying Old Testament theology, it would be the same within that. You stay right there in that, that discipline. So we'd, under, we'd, we'd learn, you know, so what did it mean whenever Jesus filled the Holy Spirit was led out into the wilderness? What did that mean? What, what aspect of the Holy Spirit was that? And then whenever Jesus, after his death, burial, and his resurrection, when he was in the upper room with them, and it said that he breathed on them and they received, okay, so whole other thing because that pneumatology right there, that that Greek word, that means breath, Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What's the aspect in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came on them like, you know, cloven fire? And, and then, you know, you go, so then you go into that and would understand what does it mean to be filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit? So you get all of those aspects. That's what you'd be doing in the discipline of New Testament theology. But if we're going to come in here and systematic theology, and we're going to understand what is pneumatology, then we'd study We'd go all the way back to the very beginning when it talked about Genesis chapter 1, when it talked about God was, was hovering over the, the, the deep right there, and he was saying in plural, was speaking from a plural standpoint, you know, so there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then when we'd see the Old Testament prophets and the Holy Spirit would come upon them, so here's what we would do. We would learn about the Holy Spirit in a system that goes from Genesis to Revelation. You guys, I see all y'all, y'all hear me every week talk about this. That system that goes from Genesis to Revelation. But see, here's the interesting thing. When we get to the true definition of systematic theology, here's where it really differs from all the others. In systematic theology, what I learn is I learn how this theology, how it goes, it translates from their language and their culture to my language and my culture today and how it applies to my life today. So if we're going to study pneumatology and systematic theology, then we would see how, how does the Holy Spirit, how do I understand it as a believer in Christ here in Texas, in my culture, in this lingo, this different language of English even that I speak, you know, the lingo here, how, how does all of that apply to my daily life right here and right now? So systematic theology is where we should begin, and tonight what we're going to study is going to look at these two disciplines within systematic theology, which is the, the authority and the inerrancy of the scriptures. So how do we know that the Bible, how do we know that it really is God's word? You come to church your whole life and you hear the preacher talk about the Bible being the word of God. So how do we know, though? That's, that's what we want to dig down to tonight. How do I know that I can trust that it really is the word of God? So here's another quote from Grudem. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So, see, God could not go to some other being that's a higher authority than him. God can't say, okay, you got to believe me because there's... There's not anything above God. You see what I'm saying? He is the highest authority. So whenever we talk about the Bible being the inerrant, authoritative word of God, then what we're understanding is, is that there's, so I can't go to some other source that has more authority than the Bible and say, okay, this is how I know this is true. 
Anything that I know is going to be true in this world, it's going to have to line up with the ultimate authority, which is the scriptures. So this is, this is interesting. This is from the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. He says, it says that they, this council got together. Here's what they came up with that I totally agree with. It said, we affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as authoritative word of God. We deny that the Scriptures were received their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. So, you know, we say this all the time in our church. We believe in the inerrancy, the authoritative word of God. So it's not like this isn't what does the elder board say or what does David say or what does a denomination say. The ultimate authority is what does God's word say. It all begins and it ends with that. That is the ultimate authority. So let's start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I don't know if you've ever done a 316 search through the New Testament, but there's some really interesting scriptures. You do know that that's not inspired. The chapter and verse is not inspired, all right? But still, they, they did a good job of putting some interesting ones in there. So here's where we start off. All graphe, so all scripture. So everywhere when you see in the New Testament, it's going to be the Greek word graphe. Graphe is where we get our word graph, phonograph. Graph is something that is, so for us, if you go look up the, the word graph and you look up and see what it really is about, it's not just, it's, it's about the, not just something that's written, but it's about the image and the projection of something, a graph, okay? So Whenever it says all graphe, here's what you have to understand. It's not, see, in our English understanding here today, we understand someone writing something out. We're typing something out. We understand a word on a page. But from the Hebraic worldview and even from the Greco-Roman worldview, when they thought about the graphe, when they thought about something like that and that terminology, it was something living and alive. It was something just like when we look at something else that's living and alive, that's the same way they understood this term. So when they used this word for the Bible, for Scripture, it was something more than just a, something writing on a piece of paper. So all graphe is breathed out by God. Now, this is interesting because, once again, you see several English words that has one Greek word, okay? So this one Greek word has got a very rich meaning to it. So the Greek word right here, once again, if you saw that theo while ago, if we're just going to move that out and you see that theo, that's theos right there. So that's God. Now, and then if we were looking at the pneumaton right here, pneumatos, there's that there's the Holy Spirit part of that word once again. So once again, when it says that it's breathed out by God, see, we picture God breathing it out. But remember, what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the same word that pneumata for breath is the same word for Holy Spirit. So whenever it says that God's word, this is English Standard Version, best translation of this word, by the way. They've got this. And Listen, some of you, you grew up in churches that whenever in 19, early 70s, when the NIV came out, that it, people got mad in your church because that was such a terrible translation. Well, here's what you have to know about that terrible NIV translation. They are the first ones that translated this word right. Okay? And, and, and just by the way, I sh I, I, I don't, I've never heard this at the Bridge Fellowship, and thank God that I haven't. I've never heard anybody complain about the versions of the Bible. But here's what you have to understand. We always have to be updating our versions of the Bible, okay? I mean, we go back to the, the Greek manuscripts. We'll talk about that tonight. You know, I mean, that's important for us. To, to those are valuable. But our language and our culture is changing. As our language and our culture changes, 
we have to update the versions of the Bible. Have you ever read a real King James 1611? You can't read it. They, I mean, like, there wasn't, like, when you look at the word Jesus, there's no J's back then in English, you know? So, I mean, like, you can't hardly read a real King James 1611. So, Hebrews 1.3. I mean, this is where we got to start, too, is we got, what does Jesus say about the word of God? Okay? So, if in the beginning was the word, and the word is Jesus, let's look at this. Hebrews 1.3. The sun, no, that's Jesus because it's capitalized. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful logos. It's that word in Greek once again. Let me show you something else. This is good. This, I, I get up here, I, just say, I say this all the time. These are some of my favorite verses because I feel like I do that all the time. But these are some of my favorite verses. For everything was created by him, that should be capitalized, because it's talking of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And this is where it gets good, verse 17. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So here's what we got to get tonight. As we look at what Jesus thinks about the graphe, these scriptures, we realize something. Without him, none of this exists. None of it. None of us. I mean, nothing. So Matthew 4, 1 through 11, then Jesus was led by the pneuma right there. There's that that Greek word, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's a whole, we could spend the whole rest of our time just on that one verse right there. The, 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 we talk about the categories of theology, the categories of suffering. Do you not think that 40 days of fasting and then being tempted by the devil, that that was not a category of suffering right there? After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I don't know how, what the longest fast you've ever been on, but the longest one that I went on was 21 days. And I was miserable about day 15. It was painful. I mean, I didn't know what hungry was until I got about day 10. And I found out what real hunger was. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Then how does Jesus answer him? He answers him with what? It is written. He answers him with the scripture, the graphe. He, he said, this is, the, this is the one who created everything, and he's saying, okay, if you're going to come at me with a temptation, then the authority I'm going to ascribe to is the word of God. Man must not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Once again, think about the value of what Jesus, where Jesus begins. He begins with the authority of the word of God. That, listen, it's not about me eating any bread right here. It's about the bread of life. And who is the bread of life? Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand upon the pinnacle of the temple, the highest place in Jerusalem. And he said to him, if, he's always wanting to get us to doubt, by the way, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Because if Jesus is going to use the Bible, so if you're going to use the Bible against the devil, then guess what he's going to come back at you with? twisted version, some twisted theology. So why is it important for us to have good theology? So we can recognize bad theology, right? Because he's always going to come at you with bad theology to try to get you messed up. So he says, 
He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hand that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So the devil knows scripture also. He quotes scripture to Jesus. You know, listen, God's not going to let you even stump your toe. That's what the Old Testament says about the Holy One of God. Jesus told him, he's going to straighten his theology out. It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Man, I tell you what, have you ever seen anybody in the scripture win an argument with Jesus? Nobody ever does. I mean, I'm like, after a few arguments with the religious leaders have with Jesus, I'm thinking, man, they should have called on and thought, let's don't argue with this dude anymore because he makes us look foolish because they were foolish. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. By the way, who created that? Who created all the worlds and their splendor? And he said to him, I will give you all these things. Once again, mm, we could spend a lot of time on that. How on earth does he have the authority to even make that offer? I mean, I would expect at this point Jesus to say, wait a second, you have no authority here to offer that. But long story short, Adam forfeited that authority over to him. Adam and Eve, when they took the forbidden fruit, they, they have forfeited their kingdom authority, which Jesus won back to us through the death, burial, and resurrection. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, man, every time. You know, you've heard those sermons. Those are good sermons you heard where he answers them every time. For it is written, here's the Bible, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Seems like we talked about that yesterday here at this church. Then the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him, probably some angel food cake, and it was probably delicious. <laughs> Here's what else Jesus, we're going to look at this, and Jesus is, he's in, a, um, he's in an argument with the, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you know, they don't believe in the resurrection, and so they come at Jesus with one of their theological questions, the hot questions of the day about somebody getting married to several different women, and he's like, okay, when they get to heaven, who's going to be that dude's wife? Because they didn't really believe in heaven. Sadducees didn't, Okay. So here's what Jesus says. Here's the answer, part of the answer that he gives to them. He says, or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then? Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I got the wrong story. This is about Peter. This is when Peter cut off the ear of the high servant there in the garden. So then he tells Jesus, he tells Peter, put away your sword. He says, how then? So he's about to be crucified, okay? How then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen this way. So here's the amazing thing. None of the scripture happens, happens without Jesus. And when Jesus is on the night before his crucifixion, he's saying, I've got to fulfill what I wrote. <laughs> he's the one that wrote it. Without him, there is no scripture. And he's saying, but I'm going I'm to I'm submit to the authority of what I created and what I've written here, and I'm going to go die on the cross. It has to happen. So what did Jesus say about the Scripture? And when he talks about graphe, when he talks about Scripture, and that's graphe right there. If you look it up, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament primarily. And this is another one of my favorite verses. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says, Concerning this salvation, so you that are in Christ here and you that are in Christ that are watching this. Here's what I said. Concerning this salvation that you live in, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully. So the ones that were writing out, so let's just say Isaiah. Let's, let's talk about him tonight. 
Isaiah, as he's riding out, and we're going to look at Isaiah 53 here in a moment, by the way. As he's riding out Isaiah 53, and if you don't know about that, you're going to learn some cool stuff tonight. As he's riding that out, here's what it says. He doesn't even know what he's riding. It doesn't make any sense in his time, in his culture, the very words he's writing. I mean, I, I have to wonder what his brothers, when they looked at that, and they're like, what does that mean? He's like, I have no idea. I don't know, but man, I mean, the, the Spirit of God just inspired me to write that. I don't know, I have any clue what it means. They inquired into what time or what circumstances. There it is, too. If we're going to study that Old Testament theology, we'd look at this, too, of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ within them in the Old Testament, okay? So Christ is eternal, right? He's, exi he's existed from eternity past. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And it's very interesting to me is that if you look at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the ones that were looking for the Messiah, they did not have a category for the suffering servant, although it's all in the Old Testament writings. They were looking for the triumphant king like David. The whole suffering servant thing, they didn't get that. They, I mean, they had a huge blind spot because they could not imagine their Messiah suffering. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you and by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And I love this. Angels long to catch the glimpse of these things. You do realize something, that the angels, they're not saved by grace through faith, right? And I'll never forget, I mean, back when, when I was young and ignorant, but I was on fire for Jesus and the Jehovah's Witnesses, man, I was looking for them, man. I love when they came by my house. I read all those books about how to fight the Jehovah's Witnesses, and, man, I was going to argue them right out of hell into heaven. i never forget, man, the first one that came to me, I was ready. I was ready for all his questions. And he said, well, well what about, you know, and, you know they, they came at me with the whole um, security of the, the eternal security of the believer. That's the first one they came at me with, you know. And they said, well, well what, what about the angels that fell from heaven? And I said, the angels are not saved like we're saved. And I won. <laughs> but he did not convert to Christianity. <laughs> you know the story of Balaam, right, in Numbers? He's the one that the donkey blocked his way, you know. Balak hired him and told him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come up on this mountain because the whole nation of Israel is coming through this way. And what I want you to do is I want you to speak curses over them. We talk about all the time the power in your word. And Balaam right here, here's what his reply was when he talked, because God told him, said, you cannot go up there and curse my people. You can't do that. You want, I want to allow you to do that. Balaam said, look now, I've come, but I have no power to say whatever I want. I will speak only the message that God puts in my mouth. So even Balaam, in his struggle, if you read his story, he realized this much that this is not me speaking. This is God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through me when in his limited knowledge of it. So the reason I put that up there today is, what well, you know, so there's people today that struggle with the fact and the inerrancy and the authority of the Word of God because they don't believe that God can inspire a human being. Now, do you remember how this story goes? That God spoke through a donkey? So if God can speak through a donkey, then God can speak through anything and anybody, anytime, right? 
So Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19 says, So I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything I command him. I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the messages the prophets proclaim on his behalf. So once again, even in the Old Testament, God's saying, I will speak through these prophets. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 Here's what Peter says concerning what we just looked at. He said, above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from a prophet's own interpretation. Like Isaiah writing out Isaiah 53, he had no interpretation for it. He was like, I don't know what this means. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were picked up and carried along. It's like, man, they just... They even, like, kicked into neutral. I mean, the only thing when they were writing out the scriptures, I mean, God used their personality, and he used their language, he used their culture, but it's as if they're picked up and, like, they're just carried along as God is just speaking through them. So here's what Peter says about, we talked about the graphe being, they refer to the Old Testament as scripture, but Peter also a contemporary of Paul, here's what he says about the things that Paul wrote. He says, speaking about Paul, he says, about these things, and so Paul speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things that are hard to understand in them, and I say, Amen, Peter. The untaught and unstable. Now, listen, when you got a Bible teacher that's teaching you the Word of God, you want two things. You want them to be, you want him to be trained. Listen, I've had. You know, I mean, not that I am the highest theologian of all or anything. I mean, I'm, I'm just in process and I'm learning. But thank God I've had the opportunity to go learn theology. But I've got other brothers that started out with me preaching and leading churches that are no longer, some of them are not even going to church anymore because they didn't have the opportunity to get the theological training. And they went off in left field. And, you know, inevitably, whenever somebody goes theologically off in left field when they're a Bible teacher, it's just not going to end good and it did not end good for those brothers so i mean when you got somebody teaching the word of god you want them to be taught you want them to be trained but you also want them to be stable because when i've had some other ones too some other brothers that were unstable and they're just easily every little whim every little new thing every book that comes out that's cutting edge and cool they get into it and then they get them from the church and they teach that and a few months later they regret teaching that you know, so, so there's two things that are very important. So the untaught and the unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of graphe. So Peter refers to Paul's writing right there as a contemporary as scripture. So let's look at something right quick here as far as systematic theology is concerned, that God cannot lie or speak falsely. Titus 1-2 says that God cannot lie, but then also in Hebrews 6-18 it says that it is impossible for God to lie. So we know that we can trust this. Everything we've looked at with it coming, that God's speaking through them, that it can be trusted because God is not going to be lying to us. Now, what about God's, God's word being the ultimate standard of truth? So this is the interesting one right here. Another Greek study in John chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus says this. He says, sanctify them by, and he uses this same Greek word right here twice, your word, for your word is 
aletheia. Now, aletheia right here, it's interesting. Let's read down here with me, and let me see, oh, you can see where we break this down. Jesus does not use the adjectives aletheinos, so there's a different, there's that case ending. I talked to you guys about how the case ending changes so much. Or aletheinthes, right here is another different case ending. These mean true, okay? which might have been expected to say. You'd expect you to say that. Your word is true. Rather, he uses this one right here, aletheinai, truth, to say that God's word is not simply true, but it is truth in itself. So all the scriptures, everything we read, it always is pointing to Jesus, okay? So Luke 4, 17, 21, this is where Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he's going to go in there, and they're like, hey, why don't you get up and lead the church service today? So he gets up, and the scroll is open to the prophet Isaiah. Once again, Isaiah is such an interesting Old Testament book with so much rich in prophecy. And it was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. So he gets, you know, I mean, the one who wrote this, essentially, gets it and and he goes right to this spot. I mean, it's like it wasn't by accident, you know. It wasn't like, well, he got lucky on this one, okay. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. So now they're waiting on him to preach, okay? So waiting, here he goes. And all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this graphe has been fulfilled. And that's when they gnashed their teeth and picked him up and took him out to the cliff to throw him off because they recognized that when he said that, that he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, very God in the flesh, and they were highly offended by that. But what did he do? The Bible says he turned around and he walked right through the middle. I want to see that. When I get to heaven, I'll be like, God, can I just see that one video? Here's the one video I want to see. I want to see when Jesus turned around, when they're going to throw, and what, they were hitting the a, a wall there, and they couldn't, I don't know, what happened? Why, did they, why couldn't they throw him over? Or was it just because the, the Son of God was so strong, they were grabbing and pulling, and there wasn't moving the dude? You know, I don't know. But I'd like to see that one. That's, that's an interesting story. There's also one subject, and the Holy Spirit is still leading us back to this one subject today. But I will also send the advocate. That's the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus once again speaking, John chapter 15, right before the crucifixion. The Spirit of truth. Okay, so that's the thing about the Holy Spirit that you can always count. The Holy Spirit always leads you to truth. If you're struggling with what is true and what is right, then what you need to be doing is you need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to lead you into truth. And when you, when you pray that, then here's what I want. Here's what, he'll do that. You may not like the truth, but he will lead you to the truth. He will come to you from the Father, and he will testify about what? About me. This is another thing, too. When you're listening to biblical teaching and you're trying to discern, is this good, sound biblical teaching? 
But one of the things that you can always tell when you're going to find good, sound, biblical teaching, it's always going to be glorifying to God and to Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son are always going to be glorified, and man is not going to be glorified. If you're listening to some Bible teaching that's good and it's entertaining, and the dude is glorifying himself, or he's glorifying his own church, or whatever it may be, that's just, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's bad theology or anything like that. I'm just saying there's a red flag. So the Bible is composed of 66 parts, 66 books written over a period of approximately 1,500 years from about 1450 B.C. to about A.D. 90 by over 40 different people. And it all fits perfectly together. That proves the validity and the power of the Word of God to me more than anything else. When I look at that and think, how on earth... Can you, can you go over that vast amount of time, all those years, and all of it agrees with the rest of it? When I think about the authority of the Word of God, though, I think about changed lives. And this is, we're going to weave back through this some more tonight. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. I mean, how do I know really the power of God and the authority of it? Has your life been changed by the Word of God? I mean, just ask yourself that question. I mean, have you ever read something in Scripture? And man, I mean, it just, it not only just jumped out and kind of impacted you, but it changed. There's life transformation taking place in there. The instructions of the Lord is perfect. Renewing one's life. Make you think about Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the renewing of your mind. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Now, that makes me feel a little better teaching systematic theology tonight. So let's talk about the inerrancy of Scripture before we head out of here. We wrap this up. So the inerrancy of Scripture, here's what Grudem says. It means that Scripture in its original manuscript does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. So when it talks about the inerrancy of Scripture, here's some of the arguments that over time, okay? So here's one of the arguments, you know, that it's not scientifically true because it's got an archaic, it's written in such an archaic way, you know, I mean, like they, like when they wrote, when, when the, the writers, they thought that the earth was flat, and they talked about the sunrise. Okay, so wait a second. Here's my, here's my rebuttal to that. Does the guy that argues about them talking about the sun rising and the Psalms and all that, does he walk out in the morning and go, that is a beautiful earth rotation when he sees the sun coming up? <laughs> he doesn't do that. So, I mean, whenever, whenever the Bible is written, you know, he, he uses our culture, our terminology, although it's inspired by God, it's going to be coming from our perspective. So, you know, here's the interesting thing. So, you know, for 30 years now, I've been listening to the arguments about over the, and you have to understand something, 1970s, 1980s, and the 1990s, this was a hot debate because there was books that were being written that were putting out into the Christian culture, talking about how this many seminary professors no longer believed in the inerrancy of the Scripture. And it was true. And they're in their seminaries, and they're teaching these young minds that, it's, that the Bible is not inerrant. And so these dudes are coming out, and they're starting to pastor churches. So there was a huge uproar, upheaval in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in our American Christian culture over the inerrancy of Scripture. Because it was happening. It was real. It was really happening. 
So, so you know, when, when, we look at, when we look at this right here, we understand something that here's all we got to do. All you have to do is wait. Every argument that has come to the forefront and said, this proves this is wrong, you just wait. Archaeology will prove it true. In time, I've seen that happen over and over and over again to where God will prove his word is true and he will put all the people who have been saying, well, look, this, there it is right there. No, he'll prove it. All you got to do is just wait. God's word is in there and it's true and it's real. So the Bible can be in there and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech, and that's what I just talked about. But also you have to understand something, too. When you're reading New Testament, so like if you were reading New Testament Greek, here's what you understood. There's no quotation marks. So like today, if we're going to quote somebody, we put the quotation marks and we cite it, okay? And that's going to be exactly word for word. Well, in the Greek, whenever they're writing and they're, they're quoting someone else, if they just got generally in w- with the same implication, it was okay, they didn't put quotation marks and it had to be word for word or they got counted off on their exam, okay? So whenever they're quoting something, many times, that's been another one of two. It's like, oh, it's, you know, they're quoting something from the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't say that. Matter of fact, we, we came across that yesterday, but I didn't, it wasn't important to bring it up for the whole congregation. But in James, we came across something where it was not a direct quotation. But it was the general understanding from the Old Testament. And, that was, that, and so in their culture, in their time, the way they quoted stuff is different than the way we quote it. But none of it brings error to Bible doctrine. Okay? So that's what you have to understand. Anytime where there's a loose quotation in there, it's not compromising biblical doctrine. If that was the issue, then they'd have a point. But it never compromises about biblical doctrine. So if we deny inerrancy, I'm up here, we essentially make our own human minds the higher standard of truth than God's word itself. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So when we don't, when we don't accept this, here's our problem. Then we get to the point to where everything's fair game now. I mean, if the Bible is not the standard of inerrancy and authoritative word of God, then, then what is well, nothing really is, and it just all comes down to our opinion and what's relevant to us. Is that not something that we see happening in our culture today? So if we deny inerrancy, we must also say that the Bible is wrong not only in minor details, but in some of its doctrines as well. So whenever those young pastors were coming out in the 70s and 80s and 90s and they weren't believing in the inerrancy of the word of God so it wasn't just that they started kind of leading people off in little bitty minor doctrines because then it's because it's it's inevitable it's going to lead into the bigger more important things so how important is the the virgin birth okay so whenever some of these dudes came out of some you know they came into their churches And in a little while, it wasn't just that they weren't believing Matthew, didn't write Matthew or something like that. All of a sudden, they're starting to believe, okay, I don't really believe in the virgin birth. Okay, so you remove the virgin birth, and you remove the divinity of Jesus. You remove the divinity of Jesus, and now you remove the atonement. You remove the atonement, and you stay in your sins. You stay in your sins, and you're headed for hell. Do you see the progression there? So, I mean, why is it important for us to see this and understand that it is the ultimate authority because that's what's going to keep us from running into major errors. 
Okay, so here's the story I was telling you about a while ago with the Sadducees. So just take all that I said a while ago and reapply it now. <laughs> Jesus answered them, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And let me tell you something. I, we know they didn't take that well. They spent their whole life studying scripture. And Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. So if I know all the Bible backwards and forwards, but I have not the Holy Spirit within me, then I'm not going to have the transforming power of God working through me. So it doesn't matter how much Bible I know. What it matters is, is how much of that Bible is changing me. David Caress, they said he had a photographic memory and that he had most of the Bible memorized. Now, you know the story of David Koresh and what happened there. I mean, that stuff got out of control real fast there, didn't it? There's been lots of, I mean, Jim, I mean, Jim Jones, is that his name? I always get him and Jerry Jones mixed up. Anyway, Jim Jones... <laughs> He, he had a lot of, that dude was, I mean, he, his, his intellectual capacity was much higher than the average person, but dude, I mean, he was a nutcase. So, I mean, it doesn't matter how much Bible you know, and knows how much is changing you. I can't believe I just said that. Can we take that off the recording somehow, Sean? So here tonight, here's what I want to show you when I think about the inerrancy of the Word of God. Here is, to me, one of the greatest proofs, one of the greatest victories. I mean, when God did this, I mean, it's kind of like it shut up years, centuries and centuries of people that were critical of the Bible. And that's whenever in 1946, 1947, those Bedouin shepherd boys were out there and they were messing around those caves and one of them stumbled into the Dead Sea Scrolls where they found 981 biblical Old Testament texts. This is the entire book of Isaiah right there they found. Now, I'm sure that God was up in heaven laughing, thinking, oh, this is so good. This is going to be so good. Because here are the caves where these boys were playing, and they found them. They, over the years, I mean, I think it went all the way to 1956. There's 11 caves, I believe, that they found. They kept on finding and kept on finding and kept on finding. So here's why this was such a huge discovery. Check this out. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest Hebrew language manuscripts of the Bible were the Mosaic text dating to the 10th century after Jesus. So... When they would look at Isaiah 53, the, the, the critics, they'd be like, it was written after Jesus. There's no way they could write that before Jesus and be that accurate. No possible way. No possible way they could say it's from Bethlehem. That was all written after Jesus. I mean, look, 10th century, it's 100 years. I'm not real good with math, but I can figure that one. That's 100 years. It's 1,000. Say, I'm not good at math. I just told you that. <laughs> look at this. Dead Sea Scrolls, look at this. They dated back to the 2nd century B.C. That's why people are scared of public speaking, by the way. Make a fool of yourself. I don't mind. I've done it enough by now that it doesn't bother me anymore. Dead Sea Scrolls go back to 2nd century before Jesus. Okay? So, whenever they found it, here's the interesting thing. Are you with me now? Check this out. Of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. The remaining three letters compromise the word light, 
which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning greatly. So this is from the book, the, Be- the Dead Sea Scrolls. So whenever they found it, here's what, the, over all those years, here's what they found. Very little difference. So they went back to this which was found two centuries before Jesus, and there's no changes. So it proved that it was written before Jesus. So here's, let's just read Isaiah 53 right quick. This was written in 700 B.C. The earliest crucifixion recorded was about 479 B.C. So this is over 200 years before crucifixion was ever invented. Listen to what, here's Isaiah, imagine this, carried along by the Holy Spirit, doesn't even know what he's writing. Here's what he says. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Oh, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot like a root in dry ground. There was nothing, nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked to the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Remember, this is over 200 years before crucifixion is even invented. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray straight away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led away like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth unjustly condemned. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of many people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. (laughs) But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. When he sees all the accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Do you see why the critics were like, there's no way that could be written before? Man, I mean, that that is amazing. I mean, he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 700 B.C., he wrote that, not even knowing what he was writing. And so whenever they found those Dead Sea Scrolls, it shut up all of those critics that had been laughing at the Christians for all those years, saying, y'all are ridiculous, ridiculous to be believing something that was written after the fact. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the question that really comes down to all of our shoulders when we think about the Bible, when we think about our faith, when we choose what we're going to believe and what we're not going to believe, it comes down to this. Do I have assurance in the things that I'm hoping for? Do I have assurance of the salvation, the forgiveness of my sins? Do I have the assurance that heaven is not only somewhere I'm going to go in the future, but it's somewhere that's coming to me right now? Do I have, do I have the conviction of the things that I've not I have never seen Jesus in the flesh, but oh, how I have experienced him. And I have got a strong conviction. I believe in the bodily resurrection the third day from the grave. I believe that the Holy Spirit has entered my life, that it leads me today. That, I mean, I've, I've seen, I mean, I've seen God work in miraculous ways, right? And so it's a strong conviction in my heart. So in our lifetime, we, those of us who are 40 years old and older, have seen some strong, critical stuff get crushed. And here's what's going to happen in the future. The critical stuff that pops up, God will eventually in his time crush that as well. It's amazing how he does that. It's like gathering all this attention about Isaiah and then finding I mean, really, have you ever thought about how funny that is? That there was three shepherd boys out there playing in those, and they climbed up in those caves and tripped. The, the, the story, the legend goes that one of them actually tripped and fell into it and broke one of the, the, the clay jars and like, oh, look at that. There's some old books or something and pulled it out and took it back to his, and when he took it back to his family, they didn't know what to do with it. They were, they were living in tents in the desert. They hung it up in their tent. They hung it up, and then I got their friends to come look at it. Look at that. What is that? I don't know. But it's cool. Oh, look at it. They took it into town, and when the people in town saw it, they are like, oh, this is useless. It's, it's probably got stolen from some synagogue. The story is really funny. It's really interesting how that they kept current people. I think they finally stole it, sold it the first time for like $30. <laughs> and now it's like, you know, what the word, what's, what's it worth now? You know, I mean, more than $30, probably more than $30 million, you know. Still not good with number, numbers, but I'm thinking probably that, Chuck. You think so? The numbers guy over here? Can I show you all one more thing? I got just a little bit of time right here. Okay? Real quick. So here's another one of the critics. They came at, the, they came at Bible scholars and said, this guy right here mentioned in 2 Kings 15, 29, we're going to call him Tiger Man because I don't know how to pronounce that. Okay, so Tiger Man, they said he didn't, he was never a king, he never existed. Well, guess what? The archaeologists went out, they found his capital city. They dug it up, and they found bricks in his capital city, and it said Tiger Man was a king, he's the Westlands, he lived during the earth. That's what it said all over his bricks. And so once again, they brought the bricks out there, and they said, hey, look at this. Y'all were saying that we were stupid for believing that this guy ever existed. Look, here's his capital city, here's the bricks, here it all is right there. What are you going to say about it now? Same thing they keep on saying. They still don't believe it. See, we, 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 we have a choice what we believe. There's always going to be critics. So this is where we start off when we start off in systematic theology. We start off with understanding the word of God is authoritative and it's inerrant. Next week, 
we're going to go into justification and start talking about the layers of salvation is where we'll go next week. So thank you guys for showing up. Thank you guys for being online. Let's close out with a word of prayer. So God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truthfulness in your word, for your authority, God. We thank you that we have the opportunity to study and to go deep, God. So we just pray, Lord, that you'll take the things, Holy Spirit, that we've learned that are in our mind, move them into our heart, help us to live it, for our faith to grow, for our love to grow. God, for our relationship with you to be stirred up and to grow. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.